and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening and welcome, friends. <laughs> From some distant places, really, um, I'm seeing Wisconsin, I'm seeing Santa Fe, I'm seeing Salinas, I'm seeing... Where else are we zooming in from? The greater Santa Cruz area, of course. Anyway, welcome, friends. And um, I was just reflecting upon when seeing this uh, video and audio of the bell, you know, uh, we we did that at the beginning of the pandemic as a way of um, staying connected to the site. And that ginkgo tree in the background is now at least 10 feet taller in these two and a half years it has grown. You might want to swing by our zendo and see the ginkgo tree. We return, that's what we do. We return again and again. Last week, Patrick made reference to safe refuge and in the context of making some quote from the Dhammapada, talking about that what we're really seeking is relief from suffering. <clears throat> so I'd like to pick up that thread this week and uh, in this context of the disruption of the last couple of years. You know, at the beginning, we put uh, Song of the Grass Hut back in our chant rotation, thinking that people were going to be alone in their little huts. <laughs> and so we might as well celebrate the hut. And I've been rereading it and studying it uh, thinking about returning, <clears throat> returning, returning always, uh, retreating to our symbolic grass huts, seemingly alone and while alone, <clears throat> seemingly untroubled by the things of the world. And the song of the grass hut has in, the, in it these lines Turn around the light to shine within, and then just return. So this is what we do. We return again and again, seeking our relief. And a little bit later in the grass hut, meet the ancestral teachings, teachers, be familiar with their instruction, bind grasses to build a hut, and don't give up. This is admonition, you know, right there for great faith and great determination. Also in Song of the Grass Hut, uh, referencing the ancestral teachers, you know, we 
we know that they all offered us, as the song goes, thousands of words, myriad interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. So all of those teachers, all of those years, all of those centuries, offering you words and interpretations to free you from obstructions. We could say to untie our tangles, to untie our knots. And then a little bit later, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. I'd like to offer you this way of understanding. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. What does this have to do with great effort? The great effort that it takes to return. It sounds contradictory, making great effort and relaxing completely. But open your hands and walk innocent. So here's the parallel that I see. We, we recognize the three pillars of Zen, you know, great faith, great doubt, great determination. And I would say that this meet the ancestral teachers is an expression of great faith. And then in intimate companionship, <laughs> thousands of words myriad interpretations are an expression of great doubt. One has to bring one's own doubt and inquiry forward, understanding all of these interpretations and great determination. I now interpret these myself when I look back at the language and the original characters and so on. I interpret them also as uh, the great faith can be understood as trust. So it's an equal translation of the words. And this great doubt can be understood as inquiry, examination, looking, inquiry. And great determination, you might remember from a couple of weeks ago I said this, that it actually is great effort not determination as in a goal orientation, like I'm going to get to that place, but as in I'm going to continually bring effort forward. And this is the word that we hear in the Sanskrit as virya. And I would say that that virya, that effort, is rooted in devotion. And I want to see if I can describe for you how faith and doubt together create devotion, faith and doubt, hand in hand. And we can do this effort uh, because we are connected to each other and because we are connected to our ancestry. Faith and doubt in kind of traditional language sound like opposites, right? Like if you have faith, faith, complete faith, what is there to doubt? You just believe it. You have faith. <laughs> and then if you have doubt, uh-oh, that means your faith has slipped. Those are the traditional ways of understanding faith and doubt. But actually, I would say 
that trust and inquiry are not opposites at all, that they're actually necessary companions. There is a uh, religious scholar named Barbara O'Brien, and she talks about faith and doubt in this same way of uh, being necessary companions. And that they're both about openness. Faith, she says, is about living in an open-hearted and courageous way, not a closed-up and self-protecting way. And she goes on to say that faith or we could say this trust, helps us overcome fear. And that would be fear of pain or fear of grief or fear of disappointment, fear of anything that we are likely to be afraid of. But this kind of faith, this kind of trust, allows us to stay open to new experience and open to new understanding. The traditional way of understanding faith uh, with a mind of certainty is actually closed, isn't it? It's not that open-hearted that we seek. Barbara O'Brien uh, quotes Pema children, and, she, and Pema said, we can let the circumstances of our lives harden us so that we become increasingly resentful and afraid, or we can let them soften us and make us kinder more open to what scares us. We always have this choice. These are very strong words from Pema. So I understand this as the trust of being open to what scares us, you know, being willing to get into the compost of our lives. <laughs> and what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, getting into the endarkenment the endarkenment as a necessary companion to enlightenment. Uh, these two together, and I would say the same for faith and doubt, is what awake, makes awakening whole. <clears throat> doubt, in a traditional sense, acknowledges what is not understood. And with me feeling it like now as inquiry, this is actively seeking some understanding and also accepting, especially in our practice, that our understanding is never really going to be completely perfect as long as we're putting language and concepts on it. Language and concepts are going to help us kind of miss the point if we stick to them only. We could think of this, as Barbara O'Brien talks about it, uh, with some humility, recognizing that doubt and understanding go hand in hand, and the humility of recognizing, oh, there probably always will be a little bit more to explore. The other kind of doubt that is uh, maybe causes us to say, oh, all religion is just a bunch of hoo-ha. I'm just going to fold my arms and say, no, I'm not going to do this. Or you could say, oh, you know, the, I've, I've learned everything I'm going to learn from this place. This place has nothing to teach me anymore. That's, that's a different kind of doubt that is, again, closed, isn't it? There is a saying in Buddhism. I love this. 
sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. <laughs> this brings a great deal of joy. So the phrase is very, very helpful. And I want to say that the teachings, the ancestral teachings, hand in hand with the support of the Sangha, is what allow us to um, walk in bewilderment joyfully rather than fearfully. How exactly do we get out of the tangle, our tangle of the habitual or the tangle of the tendency to want to blame someone else for our suffering, for example? <laughs> Many cultures have ways of petitioning, praying beyond what would be uh, words and thinking for the relief from suffering. And frequently, these prayers or these supplications are to a female figure. We have Avalokiteshvara, hearer of the cries of the world. Recently, I was given a great gift, and I want to show her to you. I don't know if you're going to be able to see much of her on your screen, but I'm going to hold it up real close. This is a painting from a German painter who lived um, from the mid-17th century to around the year 1705. And I want to tell you a story about this painting. She is called Our Lady Untire of Knots, or Our Lady Undoer of Knots, in a Christian tradition. So this German painter, um, was an artist for altars in Germany. And the person who is currently our Pope, uh, the Catholic Church Pope, named Francis, uh, had a different name when he was just a normal priest, Bergoglio. And he was enamored by Our Lady Untire of Knots. And as the story goes, I had to research this a little bit when I received the gift. Bergoglio was a teacher in a seminary and sent his seminarians with copies of this image out into the slums of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And the faithful in those communities were overwhelmed by the depiction of Mary as a knot and problem solver. So this image has now become an international phenomenon, an international icon. And I would like to tell you her prayer. Holy Mother, it'll make me cry, forgive me. Holy Mother, undoer of knots, <clears throat> may the knotted cords of your, sorry, May the unknotted cords of your wisdom free me from the knotted confusions of my mind, so I am rendered harmless and move in the world with clarity of mind and kindness of heart. This sounds a lot like a supplication that we would make for our, our own Avalokiteshvara depicted with 10,000 arms and hands, each one with a tool of some kind ready 
to help us untangle. It takes persistence to untie a knot. So, thank you very much for this gift. It opened my mind to the value of this uh, now internationally known female figure. It takes persistence to untie a knot. So, this great faith and great doubt, great determination, which I understand as great trust, great inquiry, great effort, that effort is the persistence that it takes to untie a knot, to untangle our habitual responses to the world. Sometimes in zazen we may find ourselves thinking or remembering or planning or ruminating on something. <laughs> and then every once in a while we wake up and come back to the inhalation and exhalation. Each time we return to breathing in, breathing out, we're interrupting the conditioned pattern of our minds. And Catherine speaks of that pattern as a storyline. So each time, she says, we leave our storyline to return to the breath, we strengthen our awareness that breathing is what is actually happening and storytelling is fiction. So in this context tonight, I would say, each time we leave our storyline to return to the breath, we are untying our knots. We're acknowledging that our thoughts and perceptions, our reactions, our memories, our plannings, our ruminations, all of that, uh, we recognize them as storytelling rather than what actually is happening. We pay attention to the sensations of the body without doing anything about them. As much as possible, we make the effort to not move away from them. We don't judge, we don't interpret, we don't comment on them, we just notice them. Sensations in and of themselves are not right or wrong. You know, last fall, already a year ago, imagine, last fall, I think it was, we studied the fox koan and discovered nothing is hidden. We practice, we make this great effort to see what is right in front of our face. Nothing is hidden, it's right here. <laughs> it's hard to see because it's so obvious sometimes. Practicing this way, returning to the breath in zazen, usually means that we're kind of watching what we, what our impulses are, what we want to do. Uh, we want to get better, we want to become more patient, we want more insight, we want to be free from suffering, we want our knots to untangle. Yeah. Uh, and very gradually, our preoccupation with our separate self, the one who's sitting there thinking these thoughts, our preoccupation with the separate self begins to slip away. <clears throat> we gradually become very intimate with this one, with the consciousness that we have, with the inherited way 
we live. And I want to say inherited both in, in the body, the inheritance that we have, uh, the color of our skin, the color of our eyes, the languages that we might have spoken growing up, uh, the cultural parts of who we are, mm -hmm. including cultural trauma, for example, if we carry that, and including uh, even the blood and bones level of it, the diseases we are resistant to, or the body level of it. You know, it's a genetic thing that we might prefer bitter or we might prefer salty tastes. These are part of the conditions that we were born into in this particular body. <clears throat> so, recognizing that this is the one that is sitting, but we're not, but it's not personal. It's personal because it is this set of conditions, but all of that heritage comes with this one. And in the same way in our practice, uh, the forms of practice, for example, um, is an accumulation of generations after generation after generation of passing on the forms and in the cultural context, uh, transmuting them for that cultural context. So our Dharma heritage carried forward in the forms of practice, this connects us to time and culture, including the grass hut, for example. All of these are designed to be a support for untangling the knots. And for us, not just untangling the knots, <clears throat> um, in our, not just untangling our personal knots, our heritage so that we can, as this one says, uh, be rendered harmless and move in the world with clarity of mind and kindness of heart. Uh, not just for that, but to enact the Mahayana ideal and support others in their efforts. This is what we're doing. Sangha itself is our lady undoer of knots. <laughs> This is where our trust, our inquiry, and our effort occur, right here in Sangha. I persist in my invitation, encouragement, maybe I'm being a little too pushy about this. Please find a way to return to in-person practice. Give someone the gift of your physical presence in the Zendo. This is priceless beyond measure. I'm open to conversation. Um, as soon as we, we do the four vows, I'll stick around for a while. And if anybody wants to engage, <clears throat> you know, we each exist independently. And we also are simultaneously uh, empty of independence, <laughs> empty of separate existence. We are 100% individual, as Catherine used to say it, and also 100% member of a community. Let your 100% of individual be 100% in community 
This is a gift to yourself and to others. This is itself enacting the Mahayana ideal. Through this stabilization, Zazen itself, uh, effort in community, through this very thing, our innate wisdom is uncovered. And uh, rendering ourselves harmless, moving in the world with clarity of mind and kindness of heart. <laughs> our Lady, untire of knots. Thank you, and I'll go into the four vows and then have some conversation. <clears throat> Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <clears throat> 